0: Memories of School. Memories of School. First day at school. Pedro O'Donnell's memory of his first day at school 80 years ago is perhaps more colourful than most. I remember that first day at school, uh, some of the older boys, or one of the older
1: boys, Willie Jim, gave me a rose to fling the master's face um, and gave me on to do it, and I did it. He just smiled at me, and that was all.
0: Memories of school. The master... Seamus Heaney talks to a vision of his old schoolmaster, Barney Murphy, in St Patrick's Purgatory, Loch Derg.
2: You would have thought that Annie Horry's school was purgatory enough for any man, I said, seeing a swarm of scholars darken the tall hedged road for 50 years. Alfie Kirkwood, smelling of eel oil, who wore a needle skin on his wrist for strength. Billy Hunter with turf mould in his nails. Martha Clark, freckled with ginger hair shy and sharp as a wild thing in the ditch. Fetor and field smells came past on the wind, the sex cut of sweet briar after rain, littered chestnut pith, birds' nests filled with leaves, then a soft rush like scythes in meadow grass.
0: And the master replies,
2: Birch trees have overgrown litrum moss, dairy herds are grazing where the school was, And the school garden's loose black clay is grass. But you'll remember it and the silver florin I gave you for a prize on your last day.
0: Memories of School The
2: local primary school,
0: the national school. The grey old building was a distinctive landmark in the locality. Attending it has been a landmark in the life experience of the vast majority of the people of this island over the past hundred years. The national school system goes back even further than that, to 1831 in fact, and this documentary celebrates the founding of the national schools 150 years ago, almost to the day. To say that the national schools were founded in 1831 is of course not to deny that popular education existed in Ireland before that time. We have many contemporary accounts of the great thirst of the Irish people for education. Mr. Rawson, in his statistical survey of Kildare, 1807, says...
3: All over the country are numbers of schools where the lower orders have their children instructed in writing, arithmetic and reading. Scarcely a peasant who can master a crown after tithe and priest's dues, but is emulous to expend it on his little boy's education.
0: Dr. John Cullen of University College Dublin is our guide to the historic events of 150 years ago. How extensive, in Dr Coulahan's opinion, was the educational provision in Ireland even before the Act of Union? In the 18th century,
4: during the penal law era, there was specific legislation forbidding Catholics to found schools or endow schools or indeed to teach. As the century came to a close, this legislation was relaxed and you got a uh, certain repeal measures operating which uh, took away the worst of these uh, this legislation but despite the legislation being there it wasn't always very tightly uh, imposed and the system of head schools emerged from the people they were very much a people type uh, school structure wherein schoolmasters frequently poets or ex-students of the priesthood and so on uh, were employed directly by local communities To teach their children. Education was prized. Uh, Many outsiders visiting Ireland in the 18th and early 19th century have given us testimony of how amazed they were at the level of popular interest there was in education.
0: Lord Palmerston, talking about the tenants of his estate in County Sligo in 1808.
5: The thirst for education is so great that there are now three or four schools upon the estate. The people join in engaging some... Itinerant master, they run him up a miserable mud hut on the roadside and the boys pay him half a crown or some five shillings a quarter. They are taught reading, writing and arithmetic and what from the appearance of the establishment no one would imagine Latin and even Greek.
0: The classical bent of the hedge school and indeed its haphazard nature are captured in this short excerpt from Brian Friel's play, Translations. The master enters his hedge school, having just returned from a christening.
3: Uh, indeed, we then had a few libations to mark the occasion. Altogether very pleasant. Now, the derivation of the word baptize. Now, where are my Greek scholars? Dulte, uh, w- would it be uh, 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 too slow? James. Baptizing to dip for a mercy. Aye, indeed. Our friend Pliny Minor speaks of the baptisterium, the cold bath. Master? Dolte. I suppose you could talk then about baptizing a sheep at sheep dipping, could
0: you?
3: Indeed. Oh, mm. ah, indeed, the peace the <laughs> is there. The day you were appropriately named <laughs> Dolte, Seven nines. Uh, what's that, master? Seven times nine. Uh, seven nines. Seven. Ni- s- seven times nine. Seven times nine are, cripes is on the tip of me tongue, master. I knew it for sure this morning. It's funny. It's the only one that foxes me. Sixty-three. Ah, uh, what's wrong with me, sir? Sure, seven nines are fifty-three, master. Uh, Sophocles from colonists would agree with Dolty Dan Dolty from Tlachaling. Uh, to know nothing is the sweetest life. Uh, where's Shanbel? He's at the salmon. And Nora Don.
0: She says she's not coming in any more.
3: Ah, Nora Don cannae write her name. Nora Don's education is complete. And the Donnelly twins.
4: They're probably at the turf. There's the, the one in eight I owe you for last ah. quarter's arithmetic, and, and and there's me one in six for this quarter's writing. Ah, gracias. Tibiago. Ago.
0: There were, of course, other types of school in Ireland apart from the hedge schools.
4: At the turn of the 19th century, many proselytizing societies. There was Evangelical movement, and many proselytizing societies saw Ireland as a fruitful mission area, and saw the school as an important vehicle for conversion. Then, also at the turn of the century, some of the Catholic religious order, orders, such as the Christian Brothers, Sisters of Mercy, Loreto Presentation Sisters. These were being founded, and the beginning of what was to later on prove a very big uh, apostolate, if you like, in education, field of education was taken up by the Catholic Orders. So the point I'm making is that before there was formal state involvement and control of the school system, there was this widespread network of schools, but it was on a haphazard, rather disorganised basis.
0: So the stage was set for the intervention of the state into popular education, But what were the motives behind this intervention?
4: Internationally, the state, in many countries, uh, saw education as an important function, particularly elementary education, of the state's role. And in Ireland, this thriving system of popular schools we talked about had certain dangers for the state. They felt uneasy that such schools were outside of their control and purview. They felt that there were dangers of subversion, political subversion, in the post-Active Union climate, this could have dangers in the long term. Also, some of the official commissions maintained that the textbooks used in some of the head schools weren't particularly appropriate for young people, and they alleged that they had certain immoral tendencies in them. This was one reason to control the popular system. That was there another reason was that the Catholics, who were the predominant sector of the population, had been pushing for state support for their schools, what they would have preferred of course would be state funding for schools completely run on a denominational basis. But it was very hard to deny them the right of state funding. The problem for the state was, in the political climate of the time, not to give it for specifically denominational schools. So there was that pressure there and a Catholic emancipation in 1829 indicated, if you like, can be a symbol of the rising power of Catholic opinion led by Daniel O'Connell, pressing for for change. Other reasons were that the theorists, theorists such as Adam Smith and some of the utilitarians, were putting the claim that a basic elementary education was essential for the industrial uh, and economic well-being of a fairly modern society in the industrial epoch that was opening up. And it urged the state to intervene here though it would have prevented the state intervening on any wider basis than that because their main policy was laissez-faire, non-intervention by the state.
0: So, a number of official commissions were set up to guide the government in its attempt to use the school as a political agent, as a means of cultural assimilation. One of the key problems was that of reconciling the attitudes of the various religious denominations, among whom there was considerable friction.
4: Gradually, an important principle emerged, that was to guide the state's initiative. And the principle was this, that the state should set up a board, a formal board, who would organise and control a national school system. And it should conduct it along the principle of united secular education and separate religious instruction. Now, this is a vital principle. The attempt by the state to draw a distinction between secular instruction and specifically religious or denomination instruction. And the hope was that you would bring the children of the various denominations together for most days of the week where they would have secular and literary instruction and then that you could compartmentalise the specific religious instruction and have it at separate times for the particular children of the various denominations. And this was the guiding way forward. The government accepted this general principle and at first they looked around to see if there were any voluntary agency there which could act on their behalf rather than a government board. And that was very much the tendency in England itself. And there was, there seemed to be a particular group, a uh, edu- group called, uh, better known anyway, as the Kildare Place Society, which seemed to be operating on non-denominational principles and might fit the bill. And this is what the government did. From 1815, it accepted this agency, the Kildare Play Society, for parliamentary grants which they would disperse to other agencies in the field of education. But uh, after a while, particularly in the 1820s, Catholics became very dissatisfied with this mode of operation and they felt that the Kildare Place Society wasn't living up to its original non-denominational uh, tenets. And so the pressure went on to the government that this wasn't the way forward and that the government board was in
0: fact the best way to bring it about the Government Board came about in a curious way. It was never actually formally legislated. Lord
4: Stanley was the Chief Secretary for Ireland at the time in the Whig government, which was generally a reforming government. It's worth noting that as well as education, other reforms like a police force and health service were introduced in Ireland too in the 1830s. But Stanley's mode of operation wasn't to bring in formal legislation and to establish a debate in Parliament which would raise... The considerable uh, tensions, denominational tensions at the time, the Catholic Emancipation Bill had just been in 1829, another bill would tend to crystallise and uh, gather together a good deal of animosity. So what Stanley did, the strategy he adopted was to announce in Parliament that the government intended to redeploy, to change the mode of disbursement of the Parliamentary Grant, taking it from the Kildare Play Society and giving it to a government board that was to be appointed. And the document, which is the foundation document of the national system, is what's known as Stanley's letter. This is a long letter to the Duke of Leinster, who was to be chairman of the new government board, setting out the principles the government saw which should conduct the new system.
1: My Lord... His Majesty's Government, having come to the determination of empowering the Lord Lieutenant to constitute a board for the superintendence of a system of national education in Ireland and Parliament having so far sanctioned the arrangement as to appropriate a sum of money in the present year as an experiment of the probable success of the proposed system, I am directed by His Excellency to acquaint Your Grace that it is his intention, with your consent, to constitute you the president of the new board. And I have it further in command to lay before your grace the motives of the government in constituting this board, the powers which it is intended to confer upon it, and the objects which it is expected that it will bear in view and carry
0: into effect. So in this simple direct and almost informal manner, The national schools were born. But why did Lord Stanley choose this method?
4: I believe that Stanley was guided by two or three reasons for this strategy. One, as I say, that to establish a bill and open a full debate in Parliament might tend to raise older uh, prejudices, etc., vis-à-vis the Catholics, particularly at the time. Another reason, however, was that this was a, a new experiment. It was an important, and we need to, I think, make an effort to put ourselves into the position of the legislators at the time. There was no proof, there was no uh, surety that the experiment would come off, that it would succeed. We can look back 150 years later and see that it did, but not for those at the time. So by not bringing in formal legislation, it allowed flexibility for the legislators, because in the event of it failing, for instance, it would require no great statutory arrangements to dissolve the system or abolish the system. Whereas if it succeeded, at a later stage, formal uh, charter, a formal legislative structure could be, could be uh, provided.
0: The Stanley letter is thus a basic document in the history of Irish education, and as such needs to be examined closely.
4: Essentially, Stanley says that the government no longer are prepared put parliamentary funds to the agency of the Cadet Place Society. He accepts the Catholic argument that this is not a satisfactory move forward. And in place of that, he was announcing the setting up of a government board of commissioners, commissioners of national education, who were to continue to exist up to 1922. This was an unpaid board, except for one man, the resident commissioner, who had a key role to play in uh, planning the meetings and uh, arranging the agendas, etc., of the board of commissioners. This board was to be comprised of men of high rank in uh, church and state of of the period. This kind of board structure was used a great deal throughout the 19th century. The board was to have very important powers. and It's interesting to watch in fact the division of powers between the central government board and the local uh, area, the local school uh, situation. The central board would disperse funds, they would receive applications for aid, they would investigate these and those they approved of they would grant uh, support to. They would also give gratuities towards teachers' salaries. But they had the very important powers of controlling the curriculum and setting out the rules and regulations by which the system would have to be conducted. Likewise, they had the power to suspend teachers altogether from the service. The Stanley letter urged them to set up training institutions for teachers and also to produce a scheme of textbooks. So in many ways, the question of rules and regulations, curriculum, teacher training, textbooks, you see these very central elements were going to be under the control of the board.
0: At local level... There would be a trustee and patron of the school, usually the bishop, who in turn appointed a manager, in most instances the local clergyman. The manager had the absolute power of hiring and firing teachers and of disbursing government monies to them. He thus had considerable control over the teachers and perhaps more significantly, as time went by, his influence began to pervade the school atmosphere despite the state's best efforts to discriminate between secular and religious instruction the reaction of the various denominations to the new system was swift and often intense. Both the Church of Ireland and the Presbyterian Church objected to the non denominational aspect of the system. The Church of Ireland, in fact, temporarily withdrew from the system, and the Presbyterian Church fought an often bitter campaign, which eventually won amendments to the system in their favour. And the Catholic Church?
4: From the Catholic point of view, it would be of the majority of the population... In a sense, the national school system was a great step forward. It seemed to imply at least a more neutral approach of the state's funding to education. And in the early years, there was a general tolerance of the system. From time to time, there were some disagreements, notably, for instance, led by uh, Dr. MacKay, Archbishop of Tum, who objected to the system. But in the early decades, there was Rome suggested that each individual bishop should use his discretion and that while it wasn't the most desirable system, that a degree of tolerance could be vouchsafed to the system. But from mid-century onwards, the debate still continued on the denominational pull and drag. But in a strange way, at local level, the system was being shaped and formed and given a strong denominational thrust. So you had the situation of a formal, formally non-denominational system but de facto, in reality, at local level, becoming increasingly influenced by denominational traditions. Nevertheless, the state continued to keep to the overall general principle. And certain regulations, such, for instance, as the famous cards that used to be hung up in the schools right into the 20th century, of when you would be conducting secular instruction, you had the secular knowledge card uh, to be displayed. And then when there was religious instruction at an appointed time, uh, this also had to be displayed. And indeed, during uh, secular instruction, no religious emblems such as crucifixes or holy pictures or holy water or some, any such could be on display in the school.
0: But despite the reactions of the denominations, the new Board for National Education made great strides in its early years. For instance,
4: straight away they set up the system of a school inspection system, modelled a little under Kildare Play Society earlier on, but this gradually evolved to become a very striking network uh, throughout the country of school inspection. The inspector acting as the link man, if you like, between the board and the local dimension. And the system of reports, inspector's reports, uh, bu- the various bureaucratic, bureaucratic aspects of his work became formally organised and highly structured. So Irish national schools have a very well-developed inspection system at an early stage. Also the system of school textbooks gets underway very quickly, and the state organises the textbooks into five books. Indeed, in popular parlance, you may recall that children were often referred to as being in what book they were in. The book was the category of standard, uh, reflective of the various stages. Well, these textbooks became supplied in huge numbers throughout the the state. Uh, They were distributed. The system of writing them, publishing them, distribution, marketing, was organised and became extremely impressive indeed textbooks themselves became very famous, sometimes enjoying uh, a sale abroad, internationally. So much so at one stage that English publishers formally petitioned Parliament to bring in legislation against it that the Irish textbooks were selling uh, so well in England, also in farther afield um, colonies such as Canada and Australia. The textbooks themselves, as we look at them today, are interesting. They they, they, they tended to be rather heavy in content, strong socialising aura to them, with a strong trust of utilitarian approach. Not so much creative stories or imaginative stories, but useful knowledge, a lot of factual knowledge uh, on things and objects and the environment in general.
0: From Book 3 of an 1843 reader, useful information in the form of a dialogue between tutor and pupil.
1: Now, my young friend... If you have a mind, I will tell you something about metals. afraid, oh, do, sir. I should like yet of all things. Well, then. First, let us consider what a
3: metal is. Do you think you should know one from a stone? A stone? Yes, uh, I couldn't mistake a piece of lead or iron for a stone. How would you distinguish it? A metal is bright and shining. True. Brilliancy
1: is one of the qualities of metals. But glass and crystals are also very bright. But we can see through glass and not through a piece of metal. Right. Opacity, or a want of transparency, is generally esteemed one of the distinguishing characteristics of metals. Well, what
3: else? Why, they will bear beating with a hammer, which a stone will not, without flying in pieces. Yes, the property of extending or
1: spreading under the hammer is called malleability, and another like it is that of bearing to be drawn out into wire, which is called ductility.
4: Of course, in the early decades, very little attention was paid to the peculiarly Irish distinctive environmental aspects because the whole thing was part of the colonial cultural assimilation policy.
0: From that same 1843
1: reader... The stately homes of England, how beautiful they stand... Amidst their tall ancestral trees, o'er all the pleasant land, the deer across their greensward bound, through shade and sunny gleam, and the swan glides past them with the sound
0: of some rejoicing stream. The Irish language was, of course, also endangered by the policies of the new school system. The
4: situation was that Irish was not permitted in the early decades to be taught in the national schools at all. Even in areas where Irish was the vernacular language of the children, in, dist- in, in districts, in the Gwaltooks, for instance, and they were more widespread then than they are now. Even there, the process was English was the language and uh, the drive to literacy was through the medium of English. It's worth making a point, of course, that there was no striking disagreement in the early decades about that because many people, particularly in fairly deprived regions in the sense of economic deprivation, looked to English as a kind of passport out of poverty, that English was the language of commerce, it was the language of the markets, it was the language of certain careers, it was the language of this worldwide empire. And in terms of emigration, which became so much more pronounced from mid-19th century, uh, achievement in English was looked at by many parents as being a highly desirable entity. And you know the story: old stories at the Botter where at times children uh, wore this rod around their necks and when they were caught speaking Irish, there would be a notch and they put on the thing and they would be punished uh, for speaking Irish because the trust, it indicates fairly clearly, it's not unique to Ireland indeed, but it indicates fairly clearly the parental concern that uh, English and fluency and literacy in English was a key factor for their children. With regard to this approach to Irish, I think it's important. Some historians are inclined to blame the board for the decline of Irish altogether. Others are inclined to exonerate the board. I think really the truth is in between. The national school system was one among a series of other factors which hastened the decline of the Irish language. I think there's no doubt about that. But likewise, I think one can overreact and say that it achieved it on its own, and it, 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 it was the main cause. Not so. But it's interesting to see that the board itself formally were against giving a break to Irish. And they, I'll give you an interesting instance. Patrick Keenan, who later had a very big role to play as Resident Commissioner of National Education, when he was an inspector in the 1850s, his very interesting inspector re- reports from visits to the Gwaltuck Islands off Donegal, and he writes eloquently and in great detail about a problem presented in such areas.
5: My experience shows me quite clearly that our present system, in this respect, is defective, irrational, and impracticable. That whole ages will pass away before the people can learn English by it. That its effect is to give a bad smattering of a new tongue, and to spoil the purity of the old, and that it is productive of listlessness, hopelessness, and mental depletion in the unfortunate children who are subjected to it. In my report of 1855, I took the liberty of suggesting that the Irish-speaking people ought to be taught the language grammatically, that school books in Irish should be prepared for the purpose and also that English should be taught all Irish-speaking children
0: through the medium of Irish. No action was taken on Keenan's appeals. It would take until 1879 before Irish was permitted in the schools and then only as an extra subject. Nevertheless, the new system flourished, despite initial doubt and mistrust, as exemplified here by some of the hedge school students in Brian Friel's translations.
2: Did you know that you have to start at the age of six and you have to stick at it until you're twelve at least, no matter how smart you are or how much you know? Who told
3: you that, John?
0: And every child from every house has to go all day, every day, summer or winter. That's the law.
3: I'll tell you something.
0: Nobody's going to go
3: near them. They're not going to take on law or no law. And everything's free in them. You pay for nothing except the books you use. That's what our Seamus says. Our Seamus. So your Seamus wouldn't pay anyway. She's making this all up. Isn't that right, Manus? I think so. And from the very first day you go, you'll not hear one word Irish spoken.
4: You'll be taught to speak English, and every subject will be taught through English. And everyone will end up as cute as the Pancrana people.
0: In fact, the schools were neither compulsory nor free in the early stages. As we shall see, but they did take on dramatically in the first decade of their existence. For
4: instance, by 1840... That would be about nine years after the initiation of the system. There were about 2,000 schools associated with the board, and enrolled in those schools were 230,000 children. Now, some of those schools would have been existing previously and became affiliated and associated with the board. Some of them would be new schools, and if you look at the dates of some of the schools, old national schools throughout the country, you'll be quite surprised to see how many of them date, in fact, from the 1830s. Some of them are in disuse now with the early foundation stabs can still be read on many of them. Then, ten years later, by 1850, it had gone to 4,500 schools with over half a million pupils. And by 1860, it had gone to 5,600 schools with 800,000 students. So that in the 30-year period, you found a situation evolving whereby under the board's administration and control, you had... 5,600 schools with 800,000 pupils attending. This, I think, combined with the books and the inspectoral system and the overall setting up of a very formalised bureaucratic and administrative structure, is in many ways a striking achievement in the context of mid-19th century Ireland.
0: Those attendance figures are, of course, somewhat inflated We're talking about mid-19th century Ireland, where enrolment was not synonymous with attendance.
4: Because, of course, compulsory attendance and compulsory attendance legislation was, was was not operating. Ireland had to wait until 1892 for its first form of compulsory attendance legislation, and that wasn't very comprehensive, and as late as 1926 for a fully comprehensive legislation regarding compulsory attendance. So the pattern of attendance was much more haphazard and seasonal indeed uh, in the mid-19th century than it would be today. Uh, many pupils would attend for a certain number of days in the year. Some would attend for longer periods. Some would stay longer at school than, uh, than, than, than other children. I would say around mid-century, 1850s, 1860s, the average daily attendance was in the region of about 35% of those enrolled would be in school on any one day. Uh, they were, the board itself objected very much to that and tried to take remedial measures in various ways. But uh, it was the nature of the system. Children were often needed at home for seasonal work, various activities, and sometimes, of course, for many of them, once basic reading and literacy was was, was it achieved, well, there wasn't much more in it, and the occupations arising from it at times weren't very clear-cut either.
0: The census of 1841 gives us some further indication of how well or otherwise the national school system was reaching the populace after 10 years of operation. At the top end of the scale, it was estimated that in Cork City, over half of the 5- to 15-year-olds were attending school. In the middle bracket, County Kilkenny had roughly one quarter of its 5- to 15-year-olds attending school, while at the lower end, in County Mayo, only 8% of the 5- to 15-year-olds were attending school. The Western Seaboard Counties generally fitted into this lower bracket and part of the reason was the old problem of denominational reaction to the new system. County Mayo, for example, was largely under the influence of Archbishop McHale, who was a strong opponent of the national school system. The 1841 census also highlighted the enormous uphill struggle which the national schools faced. The census report showed that in Dublin City, one out of every four people over five years of age could neither read nor write. At the bottom of the scale was County Mayo again, where four out of every five of the population were illiterate. Illiterate in English, of course. Another reason why the new national schools were not favoured by everyone was the teaching style which was adopted in them. Gone was the individualised approach of the hedge school. The method now was one of simultaneous instruction, where the teacher dealt with a large group at a time. Gone too were the vivacity and carefree atmosphere of the head school. The national school was a very regimented institution. Here, for example, from P.W. Joyce's Handbook of School Management is how teachers were expected to change from one lesson to another. The
3: termination of each lesson ought to be announced by the signal of silence. One lesson should not encroach even a minute on the time of another. At the signal, therefore, all business should at once cease. The children, monitors, etc., should remain motionless, looking at the teacher, and there should be perfect silence for a few seconds till the first order for business is given. All necessary preparations for the change should be made at the order of the teacher or of the person in charge. If slates be in the hands of those in drafts, they should be collected by the first boy in each draft at the order Collect Slates. The copybooks and pens should be collected in like manner if a division have been writing. If the pupils in the desks have slates, they all drop them together into the apertures at the word Slates In. All those in desks will stand up together at the order. Out. When all is ready, the pupils of the different drafts and divisions begin at once to
0: move towards their respective places at the word march. This brings us to the one remaining task that faced the National Education Board, the training of teachers. It was a mammoth task. Initially, the state set up training colleges for males and females in Dublin. These were fully controlled by the state and were run on a mixed denominational principle. In 1835, a plan for a nationwide system of district model schools was envisaged. The idea was that student teachers could lodge in these schools and apprentice themselves to model teachers. It was a daring plan for its time, but it was to run into trouble later on. Whatever type of training the early national teachers got, it could hardly be described as ambitious. The House of Commons Committee on Education queried the resident commissioner in 1834. Can you describe to the
1: committee the process which was gone through with respect to those whom you have trained
3: as schoolmasters? The headmaster went through our reading books with them, explaining the different subjects which occurred in these books. They were also exercised in reading, English grammar, arithmetic, bookkeeping and mathematical sciences. They were from time to time taken into the school to learn the mode of teaching recommended by the board and they were also exercised in teaching classes themselves
0: from time to time. But in a sense it was almost deliberate policy on the part of the state that those early teachers should be, as it were, just one step ahead of their pupils. They weren't intended to be innovators.
4: They weren't intended to be experimenters in the sense that we'd like teachers to be today. Rather they were intended to be apt appliers of set worked out patterns and skills. There were usually the teachers' social status from the government and uh, point of view, they wished the national teacher to be of a low social status. There was the schools for the common people, it was hoped that the teacher would be from the common people, and that he wouldn't have aspirations above his station, as the contemporary phraseology used to have it. In other words, that he would be content to work with the common people and that he didn't have great social aspiration. Accordingly, his education didn't need to be very expanded or developed. The main thing was to master, master well, the five books of the board and to master the method manual. One of the great method manuals that became the most um, established in the 19th century was that by Joyce, Joyce manual of method and organisation. This became, in a sense, the schoolmaster's bible.
0: If the teachers were meant to be from the people, they were also intended to be exemplary to the pupils in both social and moral matters. From the Rules and Regulations of the Board of Education 1855, Rule 137.
3: Teachers of national schools are not permitted to carry on or engage in Any business or occupation that will impair their usefulness as teachers. They are especially forbidden to keep public houses or houses for the sale of spirituous liquors or to live in any
0: such house. Rule 150. The teachers of
1: national schools are required to avoid fairs, markets and meetings but above all political meetings of every kind. To abstain from controversy and to do nothing either in or out of school which might have a tendency to confine it to any denomination of children.
0: And Rule 150 further required them To promote
1: both by precept and example cleanliness, neatness and decency. To effect this the teachers must set an example of cleanliness and neatness in their own persons and in the state and general appearance of their schools. They must also satisfy themselves by personal inspection every morning that the children have had their hands and faces washed, their hair combed and clothes cleaned, and, when necessary, mended. The school apartments, too, must be swept and dusted every evening and whitewashed at least once a year,
0: Much indeed was expected of the early national teacher. Much indeed was expected of the national school system. So after some 30 years, how had the system fared? I think
4: what impresses one straight away is the elaborate substructure of an education system which had been established throughout Ireland. Here we had now a state-organised, state-supported elementary school system throughout the country. The uh, bureaucratic and administrative framework had been clearly organized and established and was working efficiently. Teacher training institutions had been established and if in the case of the model schools there weren't going to be a success in the long run, nevertheless the sense of direction was there and um, there was a considerable achievement in that area. The inspectorate system had been established and in many ways Continued in that predominant pattern for a very long time. The textbooks had been organized and distributed. This, I think, also was a significant achievement. Public accountability was another thing that had become an established tradition, with annual reports and inspectors' reports and open for public scrutiny. And indeed, any member of the public was invited and free to attend into a national school and to observe the work there. The teacher salaries. were were being distributed, and in many such ways, I think, Ireland was way ahead of what was happening in England, for instance, or France, or such countries, which had to wait much longer for a coordinated, state-structured school system.
0: On the negative side, as we have seen, the non-denominational ideal in Stanley's plan was never realised. And as the century wore on, the influences of the various denominations grew stronger. The standards of achievement in the schools were in question. There was a considerable bottleneck at books one and two. And the situation in teacher training was far from satisfactory. But overall, the pluses far outweighed the minuses. Stanley's dream had been realised, even if it wasn't exactly in the form he had envisaged.
4: Generally, I would regard that as we look at it, after about 30 years from uh, its foundation, I think the Irish education experiment could be seen as a very interesting one and to a great extent a successful one wherein Ireland has this evolved and well-founded uh, well, well well-founded system long before uh, countries such as England or France got such a structured and organized uh, state state school system. Generally speaking, I think the experiment could be shown to have been a success, even if, at, the, at local, local circumstances, reshaped some of Stanley's ideals of 1831, and particularly the one about the non-denominational aspect of the system. It had, by Irish circumstances and local influence, been reshaped into a more prominently denominational one than he intended. But overall, I think the achievements are quite significant by the National Board in its first 30 years or so of existence.